It'll be fun. It made me look at comics that I haven't looked at in <laughs> quite a very, very long time. <laughs> quite frankly, I forgot 90% of what I'd written because I hadn't looked yeah. at it in so long. But the feeling of it was still there. Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we use prophetic dreams to justify conscripting teen superheroes one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined by my co-host, the psionic siren, Jessica Frazier. I want the power where I can blast lasers. That's what I want. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. I mean, who doesn't? (laughs) If you are new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you're enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it's always a huge help if you can rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that helps with discoverability. Today, we are talking about Cyforce, one of the longest-running series under Marvel Comics' New Universe imprint, and we are very excited to talk about this today. We are actually being joined by legendary comics writer Fabian Nisiesa, who actually enjoyed a lengthy tenure as the series writer. Fabian, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself? Hello, I am Fabian Nisiesa. I am a professional writer and have been for 35 years. I've also been advertising manager and editor at Marvel Comics. I've been editor-in-chief and publisher of Acclaim Comics and co-founder of a kid sports-themed virtual world startup several years ago called Fungo Play. I have written over a thousand comics that I have been told have sold over a hundred million copies. I am the co-creator of a character many people know called Deadpool. And my first two adult novels were published in the last two years from Putnam Publishing. They were suburban mysteries they're called suburban dicks which was nominated for an edgar award which is like the academy awards for mystery writers as best first novel by an american author which made me finally feel like i was an american (laughs) and the second novel came out last summer it's called the self-made widow and it's a whole new world for me at my age to discover the ability to write prose I had a whole section in our notes about your novels, but you brought it up. They are great. I listened to them ahead of recording. I appreciate it. Thank you. They're really fantastic. They're incredibly funny. Like my partner kept on sitting there and being like, what are you listening to? And I'm like, oh, I'm listening to this book. And I was telling her about whatever scene we were at. But I still think the intro where Andy is revealed at the gas station where you're describing her level of pregnancy is one of the funniest intros I've ever heard. The last few months I've been working on a pilot script for the book because it had been optioned previously and the the pilot wasn't, let's just say it it didn't work. And Ah. and the people who had optioned it did not want to proceed with that script. So since we're getting the options back soon, my manager asked me to write a pilot script for it. Hmm. So I'd been avoiding doing that for a lot of reasons, but I finally started to tackle it. And, And it was interesting because... As you're writing a script versus how you're writing prose or even in a comic book, you realize how dependent you are on the the visuals to convey what you really can't in the written word in comic books. A plot is only going to describe something to an artist. The artist has to draw it well. A script is only going to describe something to a director. They have to stage it well and the actors have to act it well. And it really made me appreciate just how much fun it is to have so much 
independence is the right word when you're writing prose novels, mm. you know, a much greater freedom of thought and expression than I've probably ever had in my career, writing comics and, and even trying to do screenplay work. It is really, quite frankly, one of the last bastions we have of, of like independent creative authority mm. to write a novel. Yeah, well, you knocked it out of the park. Both books are fantastic. Well, Reverend Diggs did a whole run in. Looks like Self Made Widow hit a single. Oh, did it really? <laughs> well, the sales haven't been as good on the second book as they um, were on the first book. Uh, a well, lot of reasons, a lot of reasons going on, but it just didn't do as well. And the publisher hasn't expressed an interest in doing a third book. I can mm. still do a third book on my own at some point. I think I will because I got a lot of stories I still want to tell with the two characters. And I left the second book off on quite the cliffhanger. Yeah, you did. So I think I will eventually get back to it, but I want to focus on other stuff prose-wise right now, just to clear my mind a bit of that and see if we can sell a new option with the pilot script attached that could create new momentum, you know, for the published versions of the characters to continue as well. But I had the third book already broken down by chapter. It's ready to go. If someone said, you know, here's a check, you can start writing tomorrow, I would start writing tomorrow. Mm. Well, fingers crossed, man. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. It's, if anything I've learned in my career is that it's all a roller coaster ride. So you just, you don't want to think that the ups are the only thing you're going to have. And then the downs aren't the only things you're going to have either. It's, it's just going to be up and down all the time. You know? Yeah. Well, before we get started on our main topic, let's all talk about one cool thing that we have read or watched lately. Fabian, you are our guest of honor. So you want to kick things off? I am currently watching something that I'm really enjoying quite a bit, which is on Hulu. It's called Fleischman is in Trouble with mm. Jesse Eisenberg and Claire Danes and Lizzie Kaplan and Adrian Brody of the stars. And I'd seen it drop a few months ago and I really was surprised. I was like, huh, these people are making a show. And but then I heard a lot of people talking positively about it. So I just decided to give it a shot. I think I'm like five episodes in now mm. because I find it to be very interesting. It's drama and it's comedy and it's quirky and it's serious and it's sad and, and the acting has been really, really solid. I understand that Jesse Eisenberg can be an acquired taste, but but <laughs> when he's in the right thing, he I think he's really good and I think this is the right kind of a character for him. Yeah, I've seen the ads for it. All I can say is that it looks like a very New York show. That's about all well, I got. <laughs> you know what? I'm a New York guy. So yes, you're absolutely what? right. It is a very no. New York show. <laughs> It is Woody Allen-esque in a lot of ways. So I'll give you that. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Jessica, you're up. Well, I watched Black Adam. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, like it was, it was fine. Sorry, <laughs> was I slept. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, reactions are reactions, right? I mean, The Rock is The Rock. You know, The Rock's always going to be playing The Rock. Which I love that about him, but he is very much his own character and he brings that to all of his roles. So that's, you know, that is one thing. The cinematography was a little weird. Like there were times when the lighting in the background didn't quite match up with like the lighting on the characters. And no, the, man. It had this very like 300 feel to it. What a shock. Go figure. <laughs> like, especially like I said that, then somebody immediately got like pushed down a staircase and I was like, there, there it is. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I describe it as it was a movie. That's all I say. <laughs> it exists. <laughs> but I just say that about a lot of the DC movies that were made under that auteur's vision. I found it ultimately 
to be incredibly unnecessary. And that's a shame. You know, there was nothing about it that lasted with me. And I like the supporting actors. And I thought that from a visual standpoint, they were phenomenally faithful to the comic books. But the story itself was just so paint by the numbers kind of a thing, you know? But I think we're also at the point now where we've gotten so many superhero movies in the last 10, 15 years in comparison to what we'd ever, well, me, especially because I'm so much older, but anything we had growing up that it's funny to start feeling the realistic fatigue of a genre happening on screen. You know, we're all feeling it. I think, you know, the reactions to a lot of the Marvel stuff shows that there's a certain level of fatigue happening, you know, and maybe it's just, you know, maybe you shouldn't be doing, you know. 12 westerns a year maybe there's a reason why westerns kind of stopped being done because they were overdone you know yeah and maybe that's the cycle we're hitting with superheroes maybe the next cycle mike might be oh i don't know new york stories maybe (laughs) (laughs) you can't wait for that can you (laughs) i really don't have a problem with new york at all like i just how could you how could anyone (laughs) I mean, it's yeah. We're we're not trying to start beef with the entire state of New York right now. <laughs> it's fucking New York. I like their pizza. It's quite good. <laughs> so yeah, no. To your point, it was super predictable. I was watching it with someone else, and they were like, "Oh, this is gonna happen next, and it would happen." Of course, you know, because it yeah. just was one of those very, like you said, very formulaic movies. So I feel like they're going to have to do something really different and groundbreaking in order to refresh these films if they're going to continue i think they picked the right guy for it i think james gunn's the right guy for it because i thought peacemaker is the best thing that's come out of the dc studio system oh yeah i also found it fascinating (laughs) jessica you might agree like i think let's say they've made 12 movies just as a number i'm throwing out there because i don't know how many it's been since the Zack snyder superman (laughs) reboot I believe that out of those 12 movies, 17 of them have had a video game monster guy at the end be the Mm. villain. Yeah. Like every single movie has a big giant video game monster as the the villain. You can always tell, like the music changes. You're like, they're about to hit the boss. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. As I was watching Black Adam, I was already like, the movie took me out of the movie. But when that happened, when that villain, I don't even remember the villain's name at this point. When the villain showed up, I was like, are you kidding me? Didn't Batman versus Superman do this? And Wonder Woman do this? And Justice League do this? And now this is doing this too? At the very least, when James Gunn does it, we get Starro the Conqueror. <laughs> so, so there's something really to be said about, you know, knowing how to have fun with a trope, you know? Yeah. And the Zack Snyder vision just doesn't have fun with it. There's no fun in those movies that was something that we talked about during our review of the snyder cut yeah (laughs) i yeah just like i can't read or even write a superhero story if you're not willing to have fun with it i really struggle to watch a movie that is so self-indulgent and self-serious that you can't enjoy the adventure because everything's so dour yeah Mm -hmm. dour is the word that i used Oh, Mike, what about you? What have you been reading or watching, my friend? Well, so let's see. I picked up a book called The Dark Room, which is a horror fantasy comedy that came out from Image Comics last year. It's written by Jerry Duggan. It's illustrated by Scott 
Bon Cristiano, and it's colored by Tamara Bonvillain. It follows a private curation curator named Dwanya Mahoney. Think like a blend between Sam Spade and Lara Croft. And she is hired to find a camera that is possibly cursed as it has managed to photograph almost all of the worst events of the 20th century. But that's like the least strange thing about the story. Her business associate and confident is a ghostly skeleton named Walt, who apparently likes to break dance in Times Square. She starts chasing down leads within the supernatural community of New York, which includes vampires, werewolves, ghouls, and disco elves, just to name a few. And it's this really fun supernatural mystery that's honestly kind of elevated by the weirdness and the humor of the story. And the artwork is just incredible, like chef's kiss to it. So really recommend it. You had me at disco elves, if we're being right. 100%. <laughs> you had me at Jerry Duggan, so I got to check it out. <laughs> like. Jerry Duggan is one of my favorite writers out there. I loved his runs on Marauders and Savage Avengers. Conan 2099 is the story that I tell everybody to read if they're just looking for a good comic to get into. Like, it's great. All right. Is everyone ready to talk about Cyforce? <laughs> yes, there's anyone ready to listen about. <laughs> <laughs> we have a dedicated fan base. And just for anyone in the audience, it, this is all my fault, okay? Because I told them I didn't want to talk about X stuff again. I'm just <laughs> trying, to, trying to take a break from that. I did a little bit of a moratorium on it. Um, so so we ended up with Cyforce for crying out loud. Hey, Sorry, like we everybody. told you, you we will, we'll talk about anything you want to talk about, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> I mean, just saying, I threw out an invitation to talk about the Waterworld comic. <laughs> I don't even remember the water. <laughs> how many? I don't even remember how many issues. There how many issues four. did the claim even do? There were there four? four, and you are listed in every one as the editor. Well, yeah, I was the president. I was a, at that point. I think I was the president of the company, president, publisher, editor in chief. It was, it was ridiculous, <laughs> a small company. But I don't remember that at all. The first year of a claim was all editor-in-chiefing and remaking all the books and bringing in new talent and kind of reconfiguring some of the editorial staff and production staff that I had there. The second year was after the previous president and publisher left, and I ended up having to do everything. So oh, that man. was also the one we acknowledged and admitted and accepted our financial instability which the parent company wasn't very happy about because they wanted to keep pretending that everything was fine. So the second year is a blur of business-related stuff and not at all the comics. Yeah. So, you know, I really had to step back from the actual month-to-month -month production of the comics and the content that was in the comics because I had to focus so much else on sales, marketing, budgets, everything you know so you told me water world and i'm not kidding i don't even remember how many <laughs> issues did of water world not even no memory at all you know well, guess what buddy i got all four issues sitting in my collection now so <laughs> why though mike why why all right so have you ever listened to the show spec tales they talk about like comic book specs and grails and all that and one of the questions they asked us was like, what would you name your collection if it was given like a, a prestige label from CGC? And my immediate response was the trash pile. So <laughs> I love weird, just strange comics. Like one of my prize items is a copy of Ravage 2099 that Stan Lee signed because I'm just like, yeah, it's dumb and it's fun. That's how I collect. 
Yes, you got Stan to sign a dumb fun one. That's kind of cool. <laughs> Mike, you probably would have loved the early 70s then because Marvel, DC, and any other upstart oh. companies like Atlas and all that were producing some real wonky stuff back then. I have so many Atlas Seaboard comics. You don't even know. Yeah, my brother and I flipped through them on the newsstands and never bought a single one because we just looked at them and go, nah, we'll just get this Marvel or this DC. Because, you know, I, don't, I was like 12, 13 years old in the early mid 70s, but I always experimented, though, Mike. So you, I appreciate your Waterworld collection because I also <laughs> always experimented with things like Living Mummy and Skull the Slayer. You know, nice. you'd, you'd get some things, you'd go, why? My brother would be like, why are you getting that? I'm like, why not? Let's go. This looks kind of weird, you know, like that. <laughs> yeah, no, that that is very much my collecting motto of that looks weird. I need to own it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so quickly, why don't you tell us about how you got started working at Marvel? Oh, yeah. I interviewed at Marvel NDC out of college. I graduated from Rutgers in 1983 with a degree in communications, public relations and advertising. And I interviewed at both companies for positions in their direct sales departments. And I went through multiple interviews at both, but I didn't get either job, which I understood because the position they were hiring for was a management level position. And I was just out of college, but you know, I was heartened to at least have gotten that exposure and it ended up benefiting me down the road. I got a job at Berkeley publishing, which is a paperback book publisher and the sister company at that time of Putnam publishing, which ended up mm. publishing my novels 40 years later. And as always happens in publishing, a friend of a friend has a sister or a brother or a friend working there looking for someone to hire them, blah, blah, blah. So as it so happened, a friend on the softball team had a co-worker at Putnam who his sister worked at Marvel and she was going to be hiring for an assistant position in the manufacturing department of Marvel books. And their Marvel books is not what you think it is today. It was not trade paperbacks and, and hard covers and all that stuff. Marvel books was the licensed deal they had with Fisher Price books to do coloring books and activity books and sticker books. The closest Marvel books came to anything comic book related was they produced the Marvel press posters, which mm. was a program back then where every quarter they released four posters full color 22 by 34 really nice posters to the direct market some were existing covers that were worthy of that kind of treatment like the mike zek punisher number one cover others were original pieces of art like the kevin nowlin dr strange piece that he did so my job i got hired there in 1985 august of 85 it wasn't certainly not what i wanted to be doing but i wanted to get my foot in the door and four months after i started working there the guy who got hired instead of me in 1983, I was a friend to this day and I'm having lunch with him next week. Steve Saffold was going to be hiring an assistant in the promotions department. Mm. And that's what I wanted to do. So I left the person who hired me. I stabbed her in the back and left her after four months. <laughs> Not literally, Jessica, figured. Oh, no, I, I figured it. <laughs> Marvel much, is but... not like a Klingon sort of a ship where you have to only ascend by murder, you know? It's like, Ooh. I mean, how awesome would that be? It would be, it would be pretty cool. I think. And Joe you know, Jusco, the former cop, would have been the king of the hill as, as a freelancer. He would have come in and killed everyone. Right. Um, Larry Hama might have survived to the bitter end, too. Um, dude, yeah, like that dude. Oh, so, um, so I've got a job in the promotions department as the promotions assistant. 
And when Steve was hiring me, he didn't know that at the same time they were going to be hiring someone over him who came in as a director level position. And we consolidated publicity and promotions and advertising and separated it from direct sales. So we became a little mini department within a year. And after a year of seeing who did what well, our boss named me Marvel's advertising manager and named Steve Marvel's promotions manager. So mm-hmm. my job was to do all the house ads, all the promo posters, all the giveaway displays, all the subscription ads, all the co-op ads, sell sheets, anything for the direct market stores, anything that licensing needed, create ads for all of that stuff. So all the ads and all the subscription ads that you see in a comic book from 1987 through 1991 were all me as the manager of that job, that responsibility. It was a great job. I loved it. And I would be able to go department to department. I had my finger in a lot of pies. I was involved in a lot. And I wanted to write, but I was going to be very patient about it. My first comic book sale was Cyforce number nine. I'm doing my job, walking through the holes, going from one office to another with carrying, you know, a pile of comps and make readies and things like that to talk to editors about. And Bob Budiansky was the editor of Cyforce came out of his office and he, he just said, you said you wanted to write, right? And I was like, uh, yeah, eventually I want to write. I had actually sold an inventory story to Jim Owsley, who you know is Christopher Priest, the writer. Mm-hmm. Jim Owsley was the editor of the Spider-Man books back then. And I sold him a story, but he never sent it out to an artist to get drawn. And then he got fired. And the new editor, Jim Salakrup, killed it. He didn't like the story. It was a nun who was disguising herself as a vigilante at night. And he didn't like that. Go figure. It was a pretty good story. I liked it. I like that, though. <laughs> so, so that was the first thing I'd sold to Marvel, but it never got drawn and much less published, right? So Bob asked me if I was interested in pitching him inventory stories for Cyforce. Now, just to explain for anyone who was a known inventory story back then, uh, Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief, had a rule that every editorial office had to have a f- completed inventory story sitting in their drawer, ready to be published if the schedule breaks down. So you had to have all the art done, pencils, inks, letters, colors, all done in a drawer, just waiting. And once you needed to emergency rush it, then you better have another one ready or get another one started. So inventory stories were the way that a lot of up-and-coming writers or staff people, assistant editors and things like that, tried to get experience and sell their work, right? The new universe was in such bad shape from a schedule standpoint so quickly that all the editors were scrambling for inventory stories. The key to it, though, is that none of the existing writers wanted to write one because mm-hmm. nobody wanted to touch the new universe with a 10-foot pole real soon after its launch. So I was more than interested and hungry enough because I wanted to get a chance to start doing some writing. And I told Bob that I'd love to pitch. So I went home, I read the first three issues, which is all that had come out at that point. So they were working on like issue six or seven because the first three had already been published. And when at the time Bob asked me, I think they were working on six and I read them and I go, oh, okay. And I pitched him a whole bunch of little blur pitches for like 10 different ideas. And I didn't have an office back then, so I had a desk upstairs on 11, which was like where licensing was and international publishing and the president's office, James Galton was up there. That's where I had a desk, which we weren't a department yet because we didn't have office space. So everybody was all over the place. So it was like 6.15, 6.20, I don't know. I was still there doing work. 
and I had a, my three desks at the back of a long hallway facing down towards the president's office. And it's an L. So down toward the president's office, you have to make a left in order to get to the stairs to go downstairs to 10, which is where editorial was, right? And at the end of the hallway, making a right heading towards me is Bob Budiansky holding my t two typewritten pages with 10 pitches on it, each pitch a paragraph long, right? And he stands at my desk in the hallway down along thinking is, oh, I hope he likes one of them. I hope he likes one of them. I hope he likes one of them. I hope he likes one. <laughs> and, and it was a long walk. It's like the green mile. Because <laughs> he could have also said, uh, none of these worked for me. And he stopped in front of my desk and he goes, um, I think I'd like to do this one first. That was the nice. I still remember this day. Those were the words out of his mouth. I think I'd like to do this one first. So right there and then I'm thinking, a, I'm writing my first story, and B, it's not going to be my last story. <laughs> That's great. So I worked up the plot, and I handed it in. And the minute, the day I handed it in, like, he he came back to me, had a couple notes. Bob's a good editor, so they were all good notes. And, you know, he could have told me to put a chihuahua in the story, and I would have done it anyway. At that point, <laughs> I wanted to get the sale done. And he said, let's, I want to get started on another one, too. And that was going to be issue 13. So issue nine and issue 13, all of a sudden, are me, not the regular writer. Mm -hmm. And Bob also said something to me when he read the plot that I'll never forget to this day. He said, no one's offered you anything yet, have they? And I was like, really confused by that. I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, no one's offered you uh, uh, any books, have they? I go, well, I'm working on an inventory story for Codename Spitfire. That's another new universe <laughs> class. Um, <laughs> and that was my second published issue was Codename Spitfire. That came out like two months after Force number nine did. I said, well, I'm working on an inventory story for Bob on Codename Spitfire, but that's it. And, and he goes, oh, okay, do me a favor. If anyone asks you to do anything, could you come to me first? And I was like, um, okay, yeah, I guess. I'm not a stupid person, and I'm certainly not stupid about internal office politics, but I was stupid in that moment because I had to go home, talk to my roommates who at the time were artists Kevin McGuire and inker Mark McKenna. The three wow. of us were living together. And they go, dude, he wants to offer you the book, but he can't because it's got a writer, and he hasn't fired the other writer yet. I go, I just gave him one plot. He goes, dude, they He's gonna he's gonna give you that book. He wants to give That's you that great. book, but he can't give you that book because the current writer is his friend and a, and an <laughs> editor in the office because he loves me. And then became a very good friend of mine and became my editor on New Warriors. It was Danny Fingeroth was the writer. And mm. yes, indeed, what ended up happening right after I handed in the plot for issue thirteen is that half the line was canceled. Jim Shooter canceled four out of the eight titles because the sales weren't good consolidated all four titles under one editor, which was going to be Howard Mackey, who just got promoted. Talk about, you know, having an ax over your head, getting promoted mm -hmm. and being given four new universe titles that had just been canceled. And Shooter named me the writer. So that Howard Mackey had no choice in the decision. I was <laughs> going to be the writer of Cyforce, starting with issue 16. So Bob Budiansky didn't have to fire his friend Danny Fingeroth. <laughs> Jim Shooter <laughs> took that on for himself. And I was named a writer far sooner and faster than I should have been. Howard was really wary of me because everyone thought I was a shooter plant. Like yeah. I was there in order to relay info back to shooter. So I knew immediately I knew I was stuck between a rock and a hard place when I got that monthly assignment. So even that was a little bittersweet. I got a monthly assignment five, five six months after I sold my first story, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Was that just but, like unheard of? But it, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But it's also not clean. It's mm -hmm. not 
doesn't feel earned. And I didn't feel I had earned it either yet because I thought I had the potential to be a good writer, but I certainly didn't think I was a good writer yet. I also thought you needed to earn a monthly book. Mm. I didn't think I had earned it. I'm not going to say no to it, but I didn't think I'd earned it. I figured I'll prove myself on the monthly book. I'll earn a monthly book by writing a monthly book, you know, and that that's the kind of the headset I had to have. But everyone at first thought I was just Jim's eyes and ears inside the editorial office. So if anyone said while I'm talking to Howard, I'm going to report it back to Jim. None of that was true, by the way, not in the least. Luckily for me, although not for Jim, he got fired like two weeks after that happened. Two, three weeks after that happened. Okay. And I was really glad for internal office reasons because that changed the culture and the dynamics in the office tremendously in a positive way when Jim left. But I was really happy for me, Fabian, the writer, because in the only editorial writers meeting we'd had after I'd been named the monthly writer with Howard and the new writers and Jim, Jim threw out all these things he wanted to do in Cyforce, not a single one of them, which I wanted to do. <laughs> and and I didn't like any of the ideas he threw out, but I couldn't say anything about it. We were happy that Jim Shooter got fired. Sorry, Jim. <laughs> I, I like Jim a lot, I, but it gave me an opportunity to learn how to be a monthly writer with a new editor, learning how to be a monthly editor. And each of us were able to learn on the fly, make mistakes and develop a relationship and help each other and work together, become friends too, because Howard Mackey has been one of my friends for you know 40 years now. Jeez. Mm. And it was good because it started in a very tentative and, and rocky sort of a way. So I, I feel really good about that relationship because I, I felt, there you go. I felt like I earned my monthly book. You know, nice. I wrote it to the end and I thought it might, you introduced it earlier as the longest, one of the longest running years, which I thought was really cute. It is. Four four of the eight got canceled with issue 12 and the other four, three of the four lasted to issue 34. And because Starbrand was bi-monthly, it only lasted to like issue, I don't know, remember like like, uh, 20 something. Yeah. So 34 was the last issue, I believe, of Cyforce, of all the new universe titles. That's uh, 32. I know because I just Is it 32? It. It's 32. Oh, okay. I, I, I know that we did, like, at the top above the logo, it said, like, 32 in a 32-issue limited, limited series. series. Yeah, we good. did that on purpose for fun. Look, ultimately, it was a great experience because I learned a lot. We all did. Marvel did not get out of the universe what Shooter's original goal and idea for it was. Shooter was able to successfully manifest that original vision and goal when he launched Valiant. Valiant is what he wanted the new universe to be, but it was mm. never going to work under the Marvel publishing program, the way it did under the Valiant publishing. It just wasn't. So Shooter had a great idea and a great idea on how to execute the material, but he was doing it at the wrong time in the wrong company. He got to do it at Valiant until his other issues crept up over there for him. But until he got ousted there too. He certainly had that run at Valiant, which a lot of people to this day, 30 years later, still really applaud. So in some ways, New Universe, the comics was a great fertile testing ground for a lot of people, not the least of which was Jim Shooter, the guy who created it all, because it proved his fertile testing ground that he was able to manifest in Valiant. For the rest of us, we got me and we got Ron Lim and we got Mark Bagley and we got Lee Weeks and we got a lot of new talent that 
got an opportunity to hone their skills on books that not that many people were paying attention to, not that many people were interested. Ironically enough, when they were canceled, they were still selling 40,000 plus copies. You know, I think nowadays that would make you a top 10 book uh, in Mm -hmm. the direct market, but it ended up having more benefits internally, certainly than externally. It certainly didn't have reader loyalty. It, It didn't have retailer loyalty, obviously, deservedly so. But internally, the people who were in the offices, the editors, the writers, the artists all got something pretty valuable out of it. So as a result, everyone says what a failure it was. And I always just sort of smile, nod my head. Any of us who worked on it, we just sort of smile, nod our head and go, yeah, depends on how you define failure. Not, you know, I wouldn't call getting Lee Weeks out of it a failure, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't call getting Ron Lim out of it a failure for better or worse. I wouldn't call getting me out of it a failure, you know? So I think it ended up benefiting the company a lot of ways. Yeah. And I mean, I have a lot of these different items in my notes for later on. So I'd love to come back and touch on the perception of the failure and all that. But I feel like, you know, especially having talked about what Jim Shooter wanted to do, let's step back and talk about how the new universe came to be. Because it came about in 1986 as part of Marvel Comics' 25th anniversary when the company decided to celebrate in a pretty big way, which, you know, according to a 2001 interview with Comic Book Resources, Jim Shooter said that there was a meeting with all the vice presidents about two and a half years before the anniversary to figure out what they were going to do. And one of the proposed ideas was to end the existing Marvel Universe and then basically relaunch it. So somebody said, look, this is an anniversary of a publishing event. Well, I said, there are two possibilities. You could start everything over from number one, like the Marvel Universe Reborn, like the anniversary in May or June, all of the titles wrap up the month before and start again the next month. Sort of like Marvel, second edition. Do it right and really make that spectacular. We were selling incredibly well, so it wouldn't be a good idea to derail the train. So I said, then let's celebrate the birth of a universe with the birth of another universe. Yeah, and so the end result was the new universe. And, you know, you mentioned, Fabian, that, you know, this wound up being a proving ground for new talent. But the people behind it were pretty big names. There was Shooter, there was Archie Goodwin, Elliot R. Brown, John Morelli, Mark Gruenwald, Tom DeFalco, and Michael Higgins. Well, take a stop right there. Time out right there, Mike. Yeah. First of all, you start to put truth to the actual words, right? The spin that people put on it versus the reality. Half the people you just mentioned, at the very least, were not big names, certainly not in 1985. Okay. okay. Not even, not even Mark Grunwald was a big name in 1985. Not even Tom, Tom DeFalco. They all had writing assignments, but they weren't big names. Elliot was a production guy. Yeah. Jack, Jack Morelli was a production guy in a letter, right? These aren't big names. Archie Goodwin was certainly big. Jim was a big name. And it, the other thing you need to take a look at when you say that is every single one of those people were internal office people. This was all generated and created internally. It was not manifested external. Some external people were brought in for design work and development work. Like Simonson designed a lot of the Cyforce original characters, certainly Cyhawk he designed. But at the end of the day, this was an internally developed project. And as a result, from the very beginning, it had far too rigid a set of controls okay and i'm a person i was in the office but not 
on such a tangible level. Then I started mid 85 new universe launched 86, mm-hmm. right? 86 or 87 universe, 86 new universe launched. 86. I became privy of the work that started to be done or late fall of 85. Half the people in the office had no clue what was being done because so much of it was being internalized and kept secret and hidden. Oh, wow. These are not the best ways often to develop stuff. This is not the best ways to do it. Best ways, if you want to internally develop a publishing program, best way to do it is to set up off-site meetings, you know, and bring in freelance writing talent, freelance art talent, and editorial talent, get everyone in a room together and work on it. That's how we did all the crossovers. That, mm-hmm. And that's how Marvel still to them, they does all the crossovers. So for better or worse, you're getting a lot of input. This was really a Jim Shooter creation managed and controlled almost 90% by Jim Shooter, right? And as a result, a lot of people didn't want to work on it. It was hard. A lot of the people who ended up working on it kind of because they felt obliged to do so, not because they felt creatively enthusiastic. Mm. So even John Romita Jr. drawing star brands, I was, he liked Jim, Jim and John got along really well, Jr. and him, uh, but, but Jr. wasn't necessarily like, if you told Jr. that you had a, a choice in life, you're going to have to draw Spider-Man for the rest of your life, or you're going to have to draw Starbrand for the rest of your life. What do you think Jr. is going to say? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, if, you know, the editor in chief being the writer of one of them, notwithstanding, he's going to make a choice to draw Spider-Man. So there wasn't that level of creative enthusiasm behind the development of these books because he internally as late as 85 just six eight nine months before the books were going to launch there Mm. was a lot of internal doubt about what was going on because a lot lot of the work was being done in secrecy we were not being given any real material to sell or promote it and if you remember you you know maybe too young the house ads that we ran were this lightning bolt getting closer oh, and closer to Earth. I found all of over, those. <laughs> over multiple months, a lightning bolt getting closer and closer to Earth. I didn't have a say in those ads. That was Shooter wow. thing. This is how we're going to promote it. And I was an advertising manager even at that point. I wasn't named advertising manager until the end of 1986. So really, I was just the promotions assistant. So I'm just shuttling stuff around and talking to people, getting information, giving information. You know, I'm not making creative decisions I'm just creatively inputting. And I creatively inputted that I think it was a mistake. I think it's a mistake to not be showing people anything. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's a mistake to not be showing people anything internally as much as externally. Because the people internally are looking at these ads and saying, what the F is this shit? <laughs> like, <laughs> what the hell is this? We're selling a publishing program. Oh, we're wasting five, six months of selling and preparing a publishing program with a lightning bolt getting closer to Earth. Like, yeah. what is that? It's not doing anything for anyone, right? So there was a real internal push and pull. There was a real internal gotcha. division over whether this was the right choice to have made to celebrate the 25th anniversary. A lot of people thought it was Shooter's ego. It wasn't really Shooter's ego, though. It was Shooter trying to come up with something that could be a worthy publishing program to commemorate the 25th anniversary. Like he said in the interview, and, and he said it plenty of times afterwards, a lot of Marvel's mainstream books were doing really well back on a consistent monthly basis. You don't want to mess around with that. So if yeah. you can't mess around with the main line and the main books, what are you going to do? You got to come up with something different. 
So philosophically, the idea was really solid, but it wasn't in execution, not the development of the characters themselves, not the choices of the creative teams, not the way it was done. So much of it in, in hiding, in seclusion. And, and so much of it internally at editorial without the interaction of any of the other departments. And that's going to hurt because if the direct sales department's not involved in it, when they're talking to retailers, they're not going to be talking about it mm. in a positive way because they're being iced out, you know? Gotcha. So, it, so all of these things were happening in the office, which made 1986 a really fascinating year for Marvel. <laughs> yeah. Not from the outside, so much of what was happening on the inside. <laughs> no kidding. Well, and on top of that, the interview that I read was that Marvel's parent group had cut the budget from 120000 to basically nothing. I can't answer to that. I look. No, I, I mean, like, those are Shooter's own words, so. Yes, I know, and that's why I can't answer that, because I respect Jim tremendously. I like him a lot when we see each other conventionally whatever we always try to spend time together i've had many meals with him i i also see a lot of the flaws in jim that jim might not see in himself mm. and jim is a really interesting man because he's incredibly bright but he makes a lot of mistakes and he doesn't know their mistakes one of the things i will say about jim is that far too often he, he becomes the hero in his own stories you're not always the hero in your own stories so yeah. i can't speak to the budget being cut i wouldn't doubt that that's not true at all I also don't know if that had anything to do with not being able to get the kind of talent he was hoping to get mm -hmm. because the talent he was hoping to get did not want to be working on those books. Interesting. And they did not want to be working with him because that was starting the downward slide of what was inevitably going to get him fired. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it resulted in him getting fired. But I think a lot of people saw the handwriting on the wall. And that happens in all these cases. Anytime you have a leader who is struggling to maintain and rally his troops, one third are going to fervently stick with a leader. One third are going to fervently fight and oppose them. And one third are going to shut their mouths, watch and see what happens, you know? Yep. And that's exactly where we were at from, I'd say, November, December, 1985, all the way through until Jim ultimately got fired. I don't even remember the, when he got fired. I think it was 1987. So. It was 87. We're going to um, talk about it. <laughs> I got it okay. in my notes. <laughs> so it's so hard to convey in reading interviews after the fact, or even in reading stories at the time, the difference between what gets said externally, what gets written externally versus what's happening day to day internally. It's often night and day, you know, yeah. it, it really is. And I can't even speak to everything that was going on internally because a lot of what I got second hand, third hand from other people who uh -huh. all have their own vested opinions and perspectives and views because I wasn't in the room 99.9% .9 of the time when things were happening. I was a promotions assistant. I was a 25 right. and a half year old or whatever promotion. You know? So I wasn't privy to a lot of that. I heard a lot of it after the fact. I heard a lot of it while it was happening, certainly from people in direct sales, but even they had incredibly jaundiced perspectives right. on everything, you know? So, so I've broken bread with Tom DeFalco and Mark Grunwald and Ralph Macchio and all the guys that were in the office back then and all the people that were involved in all of this stuff. Mike Thompson was the publisher. So I've heard both sides of the story. And I believe as often the truth lies somewhere in the middle, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, and I mean, please feel free to correct me when I say something because like I did a lot of research, but it's all external people who no, are yeah, writing about look, this, you know, 40 years later. And like we said, there's something incredibly valuable about that. Absolutely. Because we need records of it and perspectives of it, but everybody has their own perspective yeah. of it. Even people who were there at the time, like me and my perspective, like we discussed a lot of things factor into that, perspective, you know? So you got to, you know, <laughs> Mike Hobson is <laughs> no longer with us. Jim Shooter had his own view. What you want to really be able to do in the world, and none of us have the ability to do it, is to squeeze out everyone's brain juice, put it into some kind of a giant chemical cycle spinner, whatever they're called, and and distill the truth out of that from everyone's <laughs> different perspectives. You know, but you but know. when yeah. did that ever happen? You know, like exactly. I think Wayne Tucker could help us with that, though. Wayne yeah. Tucker. Yeah. <laughs> To, he could he could just tell them tell me the truth and they have to tell the truth yeah well so on that note like real quick the basic concept of the new universe aka earth 148611 was that it was like a more what? realistic superhero reality oh yeah i went there when did that happen i'm not just poo-pooing you i'm not all that all that numerical bullshit that they've come up with in the last 20 years when did they give that universe a number and what schmuck did that? What pretentious modern day writer did that? It shows up in the Marvel wikias and the things. They basically started assigning numbers to all of the different Earths and it ties to the publishing dates, if I remember yeah. right. So like eight, because oh, yeah. it's got eight, six and 11. So November, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. We recorded an episode with Dear Watchers where they actually provided us with some insight about how that all works. But the idea was that this was a more realistic superhero reality, and it was one that eschewed things like, you know, hidden races of people or gods and magic. And it was marketed with the world outside your window as the tagline. And basically that lightning bolt that you talked about was what separated this world from our own up until July 22nd, 1986 at 422 a.m., the world of the new universe was the same as our own. And then this white light bathed the planet and it's called the white event. The light causes one in every 500,000 people to develop superhuman powers and they're referred to as paranormals. And, you know, you were talking about the restraints and rules that they put in place, but one of the things that they did was the comics were operating, you know, in real time in air quotes, meaning that after 12 monthly issues of a series were out, one year would have passed in the lives of the characters. And so, as you said, there were eight titles that launched. One of them was Cyforce, and the series was created by Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson. And, you know, it's kind of like a mashup of like the new mutants and Captain Planet, I felt. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. And that's not a bad. Yeah. Was it before Cor Captain Planet, though? Was it was Captain Planet even Captain Planet. Yeah. Captain yeah, Planet okay. didn't come out until like so, the late 80s or early 90s. Mm -hmm. Sounds right. Yeah. And then. You know, the basic concept was that it was a group of teenagers who have been brought together by Emmett Proudhawk, who was a Native American former CIA agent who had developed his own psionic powers, which were primarily based around mind control and prophetic dreams that he used to find other paranormals. And the first issue opens with him basically smuggling this young woman named Anastasia from Russia into the United States, but they're being pursued by Russian agents from the facility that he broke her out of. And then she serves as sort of the audience surrogate when he introduces her to the rest of the team. So there is Wayne Tucker, as we mentioned. He's known as Network. He's kind of a jerk, and he's a telepath who can push people with mental commands. There was Michael Crawley, who is known as Salvo. He can cause explosions with his mind. 
Tyrone Jessup, known as Voyager. Originally, he can do astral projection, but then he also gains like electromagnetic energy powers later on. Kathy Ling is shockwave. She is an increasingly powerful telekinetic. And then, as I said, Anastasia Inushin, who has healing abilities. And later on, there's an energy vampire named Thomas Boyd and a psychic named Lindsay Falman who joined the team. And then at the very end, we got a couple of other people to join the team as well. And, you know, in that first issue, it was revealed that Proudhog basically mentally coerced the team to run away from their hometowns and strike out for San Francisco, where they live together in a group home called Sanctuary. So that was actually really fun to sit there and read this book. And see it in my hometown. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And in the first issue, a KGB agent who also has psychic abilities kills Proudhawk. But then Tucker feels compelled to take Proudhawk's medallion and concentrate it on it with his teammates. And they create Cyhawk, who is this like kind of psionic construct who looks like a stylized version of Proudhawk and possesses more powerful versions of the abilities of those who summoned him. You know, and early on, the series consists of like a bunch of one shot stories that feel kind of like supernatural teen adventure stories. All the books did, by the way, Mike, by editorial edict, all the books were supposed to be self-contained really? single okay. issues. Yes. Nice. I, like, I guess that makes sense because then it would, you know, make it easier to follow that rule of real time passing. You don't have to leave it on a cliffhanger and then be like, well, a month later. Yeah, I guess. But I always feel that imposing rules like that across the board is stifling to creativity mm -hmm. because ultimately you're asking to tell a story within a numerical guideline rather than telling the story to what the requirements of the story actually are. You know, yeah. what if it works better as a two-issue story? <laughs> well, then, yeah. then you're going to make me make it a one-issue story because all of them has to be one issue stories. Why do they have this? this look, these were conversations going on <laughs> in the routinely. Why do they have to be one issue stories? There's no, it wasn't because of the monthly time rule, like you just mentioned. It was an editorial imposition that the editor in chief wanted to see all of these things be self contained because he thought continuity had gotten way too convoluted in the Marvel Universe. So he wanted to simplify the storytelling approach. Hmm. And there, there's something to laud about that. But once again, you don't make it a hard and fast across the board rule because uh, you're stifling the creative process. Yeah. Well, the first two issues were written by Stephen Perry before Denny Fingeroth mostly took over until issue 15. David Michelini wrote issue seven. Rosemary McCormick wrote issue 12. And then that brings us to you. You wrote issues nine and 13 and then took over writing the series from 16 until it ended with issue 32. <laughs> just, just knocking down anyone in my Boom. way. <laughs> over the bodies. You're not sorry. Danny down on the ground. Rosemary down on the ground. You're out. <laughs> I'm stepping over your corpses. KO'd. <laughs> the, the amount of bodies I climbed over on my way to that monthly gig and just, <laughs> just a few months alone. <laughs> Well, we asked you what were a couple of really, you know, noteworthy issues that you would recommend checking out. And so you recommended 9 and 16 and 26. And so those are the ones that we're going to focus on. So, Jessica, you want to sum up 9? Absolutely. So this issue is titled Pushed Too Far and begins with a structural landmark that is both local and well-known to both Mike and I. 
the Golden Gate Bridge, where a boy named Alan Moran is standing on the cable high above street level, ultimately deciding to plunge to his death into the icy cold waters of the San Francisco Bay. Yep. Alan was one of the teenagers who had been living in the sanctuary, and each member of Psy Force processes the news differently, from Kathy, who was judgmental and calls him a coward, to Michael, who was Alan's friend, and wondered if he could have done more to dissuade his friend from his action. Wayne is having his own struggle wondering if his problems warranted a similar action and deciding to try to do some good as a pitch to make himself be able to sleep at night. He hears a hot dog vendor with a mean cough explain that he doesn't like doctors and mentally pushes him to want to go get his cough checked out. That evening, Michael goes to see Wayne in an effort to talk about Alan. Wayne, however, dives into Michael's mind and sees that Michael had witnessed an interaction between Wayne and Alan, where Wayne had made the suggestion that Alan go take a jump into the bay. Back in real life, Wayne got super pissed about this, pushing Michael out of the room, which sent him falling down the stairs. Anastasia and Tyrone see Michael hurt on the ground. She heals him, as that's her power, and Michael tells Stasi that Wayne thinks it was his fault that Alan chose to take his life. Tyrone goes to confront Wayne not only about hurting Michael, but also about invading his privacy by probing his mind. Kathy overhears this and also gets into the fray, picking up and dropping Wayne onto his ass, also accusing him of pushing Alan. Wayne overhears the hot dog vendor telling his friend that he finally went to the doctor and was prescribed antibiotics, which cured the throat infection that was causing his chronic cough. So Wayne decides to really dive in and dedicate himself to helping others. But he translated this as making decisions for people who seem to be waffling. And this ends up being overwhelming and with some kind of negative side effects. And his brain also really hurting from the effort, causing him to stumble into an alley. Meanwhile, the rest of the Psy Force is in an arcade, musing about whether or not they should go look for Wayne, again, with varying responses from the different members, but they come to the consensus to go out and look for Wayne together. The consequences of Wayne's probing have started manifesting as a man he had pushed to go get his money from a bank was arrested for trying to rob one, which was not really his intention. The team splits up to look for Wayne, and Michael wants to check for him at the Golden Gate Bridge, finding him there and pushing him to safety from where he thinks Wayne is about to jump. Wayne yells at him and brushes him off and starts walking away, but Michael becomes so upset by Wayne lashing out and can't control his blasties any longer, firing psionic rays at him. Wayne runs away with Michael effectively chasing him with blasters, but Wayne was able to physically stop him using his mind, and then Michael explains that he wanted to tell Wayne that Alan's death hadn't been his fault, that he had had further issues that nobody really knew about except for his parents, along with other attempts in the past. Wayne says that he understands that deep down and that he's still learning about his powers, but that he can feel when his powers are affecting someone else, and he didn't feel that with Alan. So Michael and Wayne end up returning back to the sanctuary with Wayne apologizing, saying that he wants to talk with everyone. Yeah, I mean, this was... For a book from 1980s Marvel, I got to say this was a shockingly mature and thoughtful storyline. And so the fact that this is your first published comic is wild to me. Yeah. Yeah. It was really thoughtful, especially about, you know, mental health and kind of the struggles. And I liked that each of the characters really did process things differently. And I think that was really portrayed well. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. But it's the world outside my window, so it had to be boring to the world outside my window. And, oh, it's a, it's a character we weren't allowed to punch each other. The interesting thing about the book is uh, all of those books, but but this book, uh, 
also though all the issues I'd read is that if you have the right conflict, then you have an opportunity to tell an interesting story. Whether you tell that story well or not is a whole other matter, but there are stories to be told of these kids, right? I didn't like the Cyhawk thing. I didn't even use them in my entire first mm -hmm. issue, right? <laughs> I didn't like the Cyhawk concert because nobody in the office did. It was a complete kind of a lift from Jack Kirby's Forever People book. Right. Where the forever people used to be able to join their atomic structure and create infinity man out of it. Jack Kirby himself dropped infinity man from the book after a few issues in forever people, because he realized that the forever people were by far the more interesting character than mm -hmm. this due machina that they bring out to try to solve the problems. Same thing with cyborg in a book that is about a bunch of kids trying to control their power, afraid of their powers, dealing with real life supposedly teen issues that the powers make even more complicated than they normally are to have this giant feathered psionic construct show up. It's really incongruous. You know, it really is silly. Yeah. So I got rid of them when I became the monthly writer, I was able to get rid of them pretty quickly. There was no, there was no, there was no opposition to that whatsoever. So what I did when I made my pitches is shooter had a rule that every book had to have a can't must conflict. And that tripped up a lot of writers because not every story necessarily has a can't must conflict, although a good story should. Can't must conflict on, from a comic book standpoint. The best way to describe it is Spider-Man is swinging across the city. He just stopped by at the pharmacy to get Aunt May her heart pills and she needs them or she's going to have her 7,000th heart attack. And Doc <laughs> Ock is robbing a bank. And I can't go fight Doc Ock because I must bring these pills to Aunt May. But I can't bring these pills to Aunt May because I must go fight Doc Ock. So that is Spider-Man's can't must come. Right. Hmm. And Shooter wanted every story to have that. Again, I agree with it a thousand percent from the idea of trying to structure smart story and good storytelling. But what if your can't must conflict comes at the beginning of your story, then your resolution is not going to necessarily depend on your campus conflict. And in a 22 page, that's what it was back then format that often becomes hard. So a lot of writers were pigeonholing the conflict into a story and it was so shoot then it became obvious. It was almost like Wayne's world when Mike Myers is splashing water on his face to get the Academy Awards. So he's creating <laughs> fake tears on his face, splashing water. Right? So that's how those read. But what I did when I pitched to Bob is I knew that Shooter demanded that. So I wanted to make Bob's life easier as an editor. Every paragraph blurb to every pitch that I told you I did on two pages, each one in bold this was back during the days of electric typewriters, not even computers. Okay. <laughs> in bold, each one said flash can't must conflict colon. And I wrote it out. So oh, my wow. editor is reading these blurbs and each blurb is a one paragraph blurb. And he sees this can't must conflict, which if the can't must conflict clicks for him, he knows he's shooter golden. Like it's shooter proof <laughs> because he has the can't must conflict built into him. So I tried to think about how to sell these stories. What it also ended up doing now, 
is it helped me in my first couple issues because the Camp Must Conflict was built into the story. <laughs> so, so that helped me in terms of my structure, in terms of how I was breaking down my plots. You know, what Wayne Camp Must Conflict is obvious. I can't use my powers because it could lead to someone committing suicide. I must use my powers because it could lead to someone helping themselves, right? So all of that helped formulate the story. So I just remembered that I'd written comic book scripts before, practice scripted off of pencils that I got in the office. I was doing all of that stuff. I'd written my own little comics with my own bad drawings, but this is literally the first comic that I went through the whole process of. I'm plotting it, a penciler's penciling it, I'm scripting off of the penciled pages, a letter is lettering it. I'm making any corrections that need to be made off of the editor's suggestions or things I, I'm requesting that minor changes because once it's lettered, back then we used to letter on the boards themselves. So you didn't have that much luxury for making too many changes. So the, it, it was the first time I'd ever actually written a comic book by the process in which comic books were made back then. Hmm. And I remember thinking, I can do this. And then, honestly, that's just what I remember thinking. I can do this. I think this is okay. I'm never all that thrilled with my own work, but like my work itself, I never think it's too good or it's too bad. I always think it's okay. <laughs> I've reveled in excellent mediocrity for 35 years. So, so I, I'm incredibly <laughs> proud that I am mediocre, but I'm excellent at being mediocre. So uh, even looking through this issue before our call, that's exactly how I felt. It's like, all right, yeah, you know what? I'm seeing signs already that I can do this. 35 years later. Okay. Some of the word hooks. Oh, I totally forgot that I had Wayne at the lookout and I reflected back off of the opening scene with that scene. I totally forgot that I'd done. I was like, all right, that that's how you're supposed to plot a comic book. Okay. Good yeah. job, baby. You actually got something right. So the thing I talk about this book more than anything else, though, is the cover, because that's the story that I love the most of all of the, even the process of pitching to Bob and him walking down the hall and me nervous, all of those things are still vivid in my brain as if they happened five minutes ago, right? The cover was great because it showed both my youthful, arrogant hubris and how to get things done the way you want to get them done in comics. <laughs> secrets of be behind the secrets of comics 101. <laughs> so I draw, all right. And I used to draw a lot more back then, but I draw. I'm not a good enough artist to draw professionally, but I'm a good enough artist to put that on paper what I have in mind. So I was doing a lot of the layouts for the house ads that you saw, the promo posters and stores, some of the more striking, memorable house ads and promo posters at that time that people still remember to this day. I actually did the original layout for drawing. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, the Fall of the Mutants poster that Alan Davis drew with all the down, the mutants in the sun and sunset in the background. I laid out that whole thing to the point where most of the characters were where I laid them out. And Alan drew the way Alan draws. It was phenomenal. You know, the act of vengeance poster with all the villain leg coming down onto the, onto the scene and all the shattered remnants of Avengers icon, the, the Cap's shield and Thor's hammer and, and Iron Man's armor. I drew the layout. John Byrne did the art, you know? So sometimes I got it right. And sometimes I didn't in an artist. Said, no, 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 look, let's do this instead. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, especially John Arita, he do that to me all the time. John Arita Sr. always made something much better than anything I showed him. 
but other times I got it right. So I did a layout for this cover. Okay. I drew it. It was actually a really detailed drawing because I was artistically, creatively getting into the story when I did it. Right. So it was a part of the process of actually writing it to do a layout, a, a drawing finished, you know, black marker, borrowed Mark McKenna's marker inks and things <laughs> like that. So I was using actual luck. The cover is a small figure of Wayne Tucker in an agonized pose, wearing much cooler clothes than what Mark Texera drew him in, but that's not a whole nother story. <laughs> and hundreds of little heads all around him. And, and the, all the little heads were going to be held in color. I did all of those with red marker and I drew Wayne in black. Right. Mm. And I showed the sketch to Bob Woody Anthony thing. I, I have an idea for the cover for the issue and Bob justifiably so was really skeptical. And he looks at me and I go, and I show him the sketch and he said, no, nah, I don't, I, I don't like that. And I was like, crushed. I was like, okay, all right, fine. You know, you, you get used to that kind of rejection in the creative industry, much less monthly comics publishing. But I was crushed because I really wanted that to be the cover. So I had it. I just, because I showed it to him in the office. So I slipped it back into my pile of papers. Cause like I told you, I'm up on 11th. So when I go downstairs, I try to go to five, six offices at the same time. So I don't have to make a hundred trips up and down the stairs. Right. And as I'm walking through the bullpen, Mark Teixeira, the artist is uh, one of the tables, one of the boards, we had meters, raiders with the art corrections guys. And there was always, always a, a couple open boards there for freelancers to come in and work if they wanted to. Emergency stuff, gut work, pickup work, corrections, whatever. Now, Mark is sketching stuff out. And I'm talking to the guys in Ramita Raiders and Kevin McGuire was a Ramita Raider. Mark McKenna was a Ramita Raider. They were roommates. And I see Mark is sketching rough sketches. And I think it looks like sketches for this issue this story <laughs> one of them is, is an explosion and wayne tucker getting thrown by an explosion and crawley in the you might go in the background having caused this i go you do sketches for side force number nine and mark's like yeah bob just asked me to do some sketch and he gave me the plot i go i wrote the plot he goes oh yeah you did he haven't paid attention to the writer was. <laughs> and, and, and um and i go i go i showed bob a sketch and he didn't like it but i think that there's something there and he goes, well, let me see. So I show him the sketch. He goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And as he's looking at me holding the piece of paper on his hand, he starts doodling on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And this is what he's doodling. And as he's doodling it, he's telling me what to do to make it work better. This is oh, really 26 cool. years old. So I'm, I'm watching and really, Mark's a really, really good effort. This dude's really good effort. And he's really good. The head case, but that's a whole other matter. He's also a great artist. <laughs> so I, I'm watching the process and his explanation. You don't want a small figure because you're not even going to see them under the sea of heads. So you want to bring in your focus tighter on everything. You want your figure to be a lot bigger. So he draws this really quick, rough sketch of Wayne really big. And he goes, I'm not going to draw a hundred heads. That's a pain in the ass. I'm going to do less heads, but much bigger. And you're going to still get the same exact idea coming across. And he sketches it out and he goes, yeah, that works. Thanks. He just saved me having us come up with a new sketch. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he takes like, I think five sketches to Bob. And one of them is this. Bob goes, oh, I like that one. Let's do that one. And I'm that's like, great. Oh, that's <laughs> like so, so part of me was furious because it was my cover idea. But because it was my cover and I didn't get it right. 
in my head the way it should have been, right? This is what it should have been. And I didn't quite get it right. So I was mad about all of that. Anger fueled me quite a bit. Actually, you know. <laughs> but the other part of me, the other part of me is ecstatic that my idea yeah. was going to be the cover to the issue. So oh, that was so cool. the story of the cover. So of course, I'm going to remember that forever. Well, yeah. And I mean, like, as you said, you know, like, <laughs> you know, clearly they saw something there that they gave you you know, the series is an ongoing project. And like the, the interesting thing is that when you took over the story for Cyforce, this was right after, you know, about a year had hit for the new universe. And roughly a year into the new universe's existence, Marvel really kind of shifted the vibe for the imprint's meta story. Like via Starbrand 12, the main character, Ken Connell, decides to get rid of the Starbrand because he didn't like, the powers and what they can do to him and he winds up accidentally destroying the city of pittsburgh which whoops <laughs> sorry pittsburgh yeah pretty much well and there's a whole backstory about that like because it was john byrne and supposedly it was john byrne doing it to get back at shooter and yeah up pittsburgh was home shooter's hometown, hometown yeah. a lot of pettiness and childishness going back then too yeah uh, a lot of a lot of the younger generation uh myself included, were kind of surprised because we were starting to realize, wait a minute, we're freaking a little more mature than you guys. It's ridiculous. The stories that I hear, man. Like <laughs> I understand the choices that were made and why they were made. I felt that the universe conceptually was a great idea, but they, that didn't necessarily make them good comic books, right? Mm -hmm. And And I wanted to keep the idea, but inject more drama, more adventure, more action, more everything, so that you're still keeping up with the idea that this is the real world, but it's a heightened real world at this point. It's already a year in, and I wanted to shake things up for my characters, get them on the run so that they're not in one boring location. No offense to San Francisco. San Francisco's not boring, but the sanctuary house is boring. And I want to create some dynamic tension in the book. When they said they were going to blow up Pittsburgh, I distinctly remember to this day, out loud, I said, that's interesting. And in my brain, I thought, that's really petty. You know, you know, yeah. it, it wasn't yeah. necessary. But they wanted to send a signal to readers, to retailers, to the creative community that with Jim gone, we we're going to try to make these comic books into comic books, you know, and I get that part of it. But, you know, Byrne went too far. He had star brand fair costume and all this crap. You know, you mentioned you were lifting all these Cyforce character hero names, but I'm not kidding. Like when you said that earlier, I go, oh, yeah, that was the main. We never <laughs> used the hero names yeah. for them. Mark did for the, a lot of the DP7 guys. Me and Howard, when we were to, and, and, and Ron Lim and then, and then Graham Nolan, the artists on Cyforce, when we would call them by their names, the plots yeah. never had their hero names. No, was, and I noticed that. I don't think I typed the word shockwave or Voyager once in a plot. No. It was Tyrone and it was Michael and it was, yeah, that's what it was. And I like that aspect of it. You know, yeah. as much as I, I want to write Daredevil or Spider-Man back then, I liked this because it was different enough that it made you exercise different muscles for your comic book storytelling, you know? And I think that... The choices that were made after the, the consolidation of the line, I think they were choices that were made out of necessity because we had to try to salvage something out of this right? and, and, and find a way to try to increase sales a little bit. We couldn't survive at 40,000 back then. That was cancelable. Like I said, it's 
you know, you're ranked number 18 on the direct market list now at 40,000, but, but we needed to try to get them to 60,000 minimum direct and 70,000 better. But even that is really low end by our standards back then. So mm-hmm. we knew we had an uphill battle. And I think I more so than I wasn't as aware of that until after the fact, but John Byrne and Howard and Tom DeFalco and Mark Ronaldo was writing side DP seven. They were aware that we needed to reach a number we weren't going to reach. So <laughs> I yeah. think they decided roll the dice and let's go, you know, let, let's, let's try to do something interesting and different. Just blowing up a city and having characters drafted and conscripted into the army, all of that kind of unexpected and different, you know, I kind of existed in a little bit of a separate pocket though. Cyforce kind of existed a little bit on its own. Yeah. Well, and so with that shift, the vibe becomes grim and like kind of almost post-apocalyptic. And, you know, you mentioned the incorporating of international military tensions between superhumans and drafting them into the conflict via the military. And you can also feel the Cold War shaping that overall conflict between the military themes and the fact that countries like Iran and Russia are set up as antagonists. And so you can kind of get that vibe going on in issue 16, which was the first ongoing issue that you wrote, where, you know, you mentioned that (laughs) that you were pulling from Buckaroo Banzai which is where we meet Dr. Lichardo, Lichardo, Emilio Lichardo, 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 who absolutely <laughs> looks like John Lithgow from the movie. And the issue is titled Foundations. And it starts with him giving a presentation to this kind of sinister company called Foundation Inc. And he's basically summarizing all the different events that Cyforce has been involved with and then identifying the teenagers as the group responsible for all the damage like that their adventures have caused. And then he proposes bringing the kids in and either getting them to become agents for foundation or replicating their powers within, you know, agents that they can control. And so Lichiardo shows up at sanctuary, says that he can cure the kids powers at his facility. They agree to try it out. And then Lichiardo's internal monologue is narrating how the kids powers work, as well as how their biology work to generate said powers and this is kind of like a way to refamiliarize readers with the overall setting and the characters themselves. I feel it's almost like not quite a reboot, but like a reintroduction. Yeah, purposefully. I think all the books tried to do that because we were hoping that the changes in the creative teams, kind of the consolidated push at one time for four titles, which was a manageable amount to hope that a reader will buy all four. Plus John Byrne coming back to Marvel after leaving to go do Superman. Just the yeah. Starbrand, we almost wanted not, like you said, not to make them Arjun issues, but to make them first issue primers for new yeah. readers. You know, it does feel yeah. more accessible in a way. It absolutely does. You know, I actually it, really it feels like you one. can just jump in to any of these issues, and it does give you the backstory that you need for any of the little details along the way. So even with a little asterisk of like, oh, this happened in issue whatever that was always Mm -hmm. really helpful too because if you did want to go back and see that situation you knew where to head yeah yeah so at this point tyrone figures out that something you know hinky is going on because of something that he overhears and then tucker uses his powers to fully uncover the plot and figure out what's actually happening and once they do the group decides to leave Lichiardo and a bunch of guards stand in the way which gives us an excuse to have a big action sequence with all the teens powers on full display and just before they escape Tucker tells Lichiardo the next time you think about using us or our powers think again 
which then traps him into a psychic loop that leaves him like basically as a walking vegetable. I actually, I thought it was really entertaining and I think it's a really solid self-contained story. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but I was really surprised to see it's actually one of the first issues that Ron Lim ever penciled before he went on to be one of the premier artists for Marvel, particularly with his multi-year run on Silver Surfer. Yeah, he'd done an independent book that got a lot of us noticing it. Yeah, and he was going to get Marvel work. It was just a matter of what was going to be available for him as quick as possible, and this was it. Yeah, I was thrilled. I liked Ron. I'd met him at a convention before he even got this assignment. He's a super sweet guy. Still is. Haven't changed a bit. I met him a decade ago at Sacramento Comic-Con, and he had his kid there with him, and they were drawing together, and it was like the most wholesome thing I've ever seen. That's so sweet. And wholesome is the absolute perfect word to describe Ron. It's disgusting and sickening how wholesome and nice and good he is. Yeah. I just, I hate that. Oh, man. <laughs> wholesome, wholesome people are the worst. I need anger to fuel me, and I it's impossible <laughs> to be angry at Ron. So uh, when I found out he was doing it, I was thrilled because not all that different than a couple of years later with Mark Bagley on New Warriors. It's really great when both sides of the creative team have an equal impetus to prove themselves, to establish themselves, yeah. to show people what they can do. Because I think that it's an electric charge. You push each other and your enthusiasm manifests itself on the page. The enthusiasm happens when you're talking on the phone about ideas. It happens when you're fleshing stuff out. It happens when you're making changes, your correction, you're coming up with better ideas and process. I talked to my artists a hell of a lot more back then than I do nowadays. Unfortunately, that's my own sin. But back then, we'd talk on the phone for hours. This was before all of us were married, before all of us mm. had kids, before life took over. So we were all in our late 20s or, or mid or early 20s. We were all doing this. You know, Ron's just a couple of years younger than me. So, it was, you know, this is, come on, this is like, like passion fire yeah. for us. And I think it shows in the work. I think Ron and I only did like five, six issues together. Yeah. They were really good comic showing two young guys who were going to get there. And we were showing readers that we are going to get there. Just watch us as we go, you know, and Ron got offered Silver Surfer for crying out loud. So he got a great gig just a few months after he started working on the book because he proved himself so, so strongly. Yeah. Well, and then. You know, talking about, you know, passion projects and work that was like really driving you and fueling your fire. The other issue that you told us to check out is issue 26, which is called Hard Copy. And I'll get to why you suggested this in a second, but it's narrated by freelance writer and investigative journalist Andrew Chaser, which, by the way, amazing name for a journalist. And he's had a few run-ins with Cyforce over the past couple of issues. And he basically became aware of their story following the events of issue 16 and then the government deemed them a threat that needed to be taken down or captured. Prior to the story, the Sanctuary House was blown up and Cyforce was split up, and they were all believing that each other were dead. Chaser is working on a book that details the history of Cyforce, but also exposes how the government is using paranormals for their own means. And the issue itself is one story with two narratives. We see Chaser conducting interviews for his book with recurring characters like the head of the clandestine group Medusa Webb and the secretary who worked at Sanctuary House. And he visits Tyrone in the hospital and is there when he wakes up from his coma. And then Chaser meets with a CIA informant and is told that the government's going to suppress the book any way possible, including going after his family because it'll buy them a year or so before the public learns things are spiraling out of control after the black event, which was when Pittsburgh got blown up. And 
The informant is killed right after he reveals the name of the person orchestrating all this, Philip Nolan Voigt. Voigt is covertly in charge of the Paranormal Affairs Committee and eventually goes on to get elected president later in the new universe reality. And finally, Chaser goes home to his family in Georgia and talks to his mom, explaining that he is working on a story that, if published, could bring down ruin on the rest of the family. She encourages him to do what is right and not to worry about them. He finishes his book and publishes it under the name Power for the Praying, and Prey spelled P-R-E-Y, and it becomes a bestseller, but the mystery of Voight is left dangling, which is, you know, pursued later on in other stories within the new universe. And while most of the comic is presented traditionally, we keep getting pages of Chaser's long-form notes coupled with still images representing the themes that he's discussing. And these sections act as sort of a chapter break in the story, allowing us to transition between scenes a little less abruptly than if we just gone from one interview to another. And then after this issue, we start to see the ripple effects of that book and how they affect the wider New Universe storyline, and particularly through Tyrone's eyes after he's drafted. And you suggested this issue because you said it was your first attempt to experiment with storytelling. Like, how successful do you think you feel the experiment was? I don't remember because I couldn't find the issue. So I haven't read oh, it in okay. 35 years. <laughs> but as you're describing it, I'm thinking, yeah, I think it worked. I don't know. I thought it did. I liked it. I do remember I planned for that issue for quite a while. I was preparing for it. I knew I wanted to do it after issue 25 because I mean, it's a big blowout issue. Andrew Chaser was actually introduced in the bullpen bullens page that appeared in Cyber Force number 16, my first monthly mm -hmm. issue. And I'm the one who wrote, not only did I do the drawing of myself, by the way, I wrote that little blurb that is from the desk of Andrew Chaser, Foundation's Genetic Research Center. He basically had the notes from Foundation that of what had happened in this issue. That's actually my computer dot matrix printer at the office that printed <laughs> that out. And we literally photostatted it and copied it onto the mechanical for the page. So oh my gosh. I wrote that whole thing. But this we didn't have Photoshop back then. We didn't couldn't do that kind of stuff on computers. And that's my handwriting. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's all my handwriting on the little things to do note there that Andrew had. So I was planning for that issue nine months earlier. Right. Wow. And I knew I wanted it to be something a little different, not for any other reason than ego, <laughs> not for any other reason than thinking I wanted to try something to challenge myself. Other writers were doing this kind of stuff and I wanted to see if I had the metal to do it, the wherewithal to do it. You know, you got to realize this is basically on the other side of Miller's Dark Knight and more Swamp Thing and Watchmen. Howard Chaikin's American flag. Anybody new entering the industry was looking at what was being done by established pros who were flexing their muscles and being given a chance to flex their muscles. And all of us thought we could do that. Mm -hmm. We learned quite quickly that not all of us could, self included. <laughs> we're not all Howard Chaikin and Alan Moore, and like Miller, even if we want to be or think we are. So I remember the reason why I wanted to do it. I got to be honest, you described the entire issue and I don't remember almost any of it. I, I remember <laughs> the text pages. I, I'm sorry. That's a, that's a no, crappy that's okay. way to, to flow totally the interview fine. out. I want to read the issue now. Let me put it that way. <laughs> well, you I'm did real... mention that you have written like a thousand comics. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I, I feel I have, like we yeah. can give you a pass on this. Like... <laughs> it's fine. But I mean, I remember I had a Cell Howard on it. 
all through the process and understandably so, but I think he was satisfied with what we did. I think ultimately, until I get to reread it, I think it lands right into that funny ground we were talking about earlier of excellent mediocrity. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't great. I'm sure it wasn't terrible. I'm sure my experiment <laughs> landed somewhere right in the middle. <laughs> but I do remember that it was important for me to do it. I do remember how stupidly and naively important I felt it was at the time. In hindsight, I kind of shrugged my shoulders and go, snap out of it, you idiot. Like Cher smacking Nicholas Cage and Moonlighting. <laughs> Snap out of it. I wanted to try to expand, not the form, but expand my experience within the form, you know? And this was the right story to do it. And that's key too, because a lot of us, when we try to do this kind of thing, we pick the wrong place in the wrong time, <laughs> you know? This story was the right place in the right time, the right character to do it with. You know, I've always had a thing for reporter characters, even down to my novels that I just published, right? Mm -hmm. I have a thing for reporter characters because I think that you can really use them to play detective, but also comment on theme, you know, which a detective rarely does. You can read 26 Bosch books and you're not going to get much comment on theme from Bosch, you know? Mm -hmm. But you can read Bob Woodward detective story and you're going to get a lot of thematic comments that speak to us as people, society, everything. And I thought Andrew Tracer could really speak to the human side of this inhuman situation, you know? And I like that. I like that about the character. I like that about the story and getting to write this, you know? Yeah. Well, so after that, the series ended after 32 issues and one annual, which makes it tied as the longest running new universe comic with DP7. And things wrap up after this with a couple of big stories, one involving Cyforce being held at a Siberian facility until they escape with the aid of Medusa Web. And then the team ends up joining the organization as sort of an independent black ops team. And then the meta plot heads into a world war that only stops when Ken Connell's kid, who absorbed the powers of the star brand in utero, announces his existence to the world and just disables all weapons while telling everybody to behave and this is all documented in the comics the pit the draft and the war it's really interesting and i actually mostly like where things went after that severe left turn that was the black event i don't think it's perfect but it's interesting and i do appreciate that everything got wrapped up more or less in fact the overstreet comic book price guide to lost universes notes that this is actually one of the few lost universes among comics that actually got a firm conclusion we had enough advance notice to know the handwriting was on the wall. We knew we were going to end the line. We just didn't know when, you know, we yeah. didn't know the exact issue, but we knew we were going to end the line. Look, you, you, one of the writers is Marvel's advertising manager. One of more, one of the writers of, of another book is Marvel's executive editor. One of the writers of the other book had been Marvel's direct sales manager. We kind of had an understanding of the publishing side of it, not just the storytelling side, you know? So we planned for our own end. I don't recall knowing 32 would be the last issue, but we all figured it was going to be by 36 because that would be three full years. I think it actually was a little earlier than we expected, if I recall. I think we all said, can we get a few more months? And the answer was, fuck you. <laughs> so, so I think, I think that, um, but it was said polite. I, I think that knowing you were going to end something 
not only gives you the opportunity, but I, I believe gives you the responsibility to your audience to, to give them some semblance of closure, some semblance of story ending. And I tried to do that with my book. Personally, I know the other guys did as well. I tried to do that with my book, but me being me, I also wanted to give them a glimpse of everything they were missing. You rap bastards. Uh, <laughs> so in, in my book, I actually, I think it's it, the last issue is a playboy interview with Wayne. There is Tucker, any detail. 10 a lot years stuff. later that he's talking about the events. And I purposely dropped some ideas about what could have happened in the <laughs> ensuing 10 years. I did that for fun, but, but also to give the readers a sense that this line is ending, but that the characters still exist somewhere still a lot you know yeah well and you know since then you know it's one of those situations of the new universe being gone but not forgotten because marvel keeps bringing back the characters in the universe like quasar traveled to the new universe in 1992 and then returned to the main earth via the power of the star brand the character justice showed up in spider-man 2099 as a character known as the net prophet 2005 Exiles World Tour storyline saw the team encounter versions of DP7, Starbrand, Justice, and Nightmask. In 2006, Marvel published five new one-shot books and also included three short stories under the label Untold Tales of the New Universe. And then in 2007, Warren Ellis Salvador LaRocca rebooted the continuity as New Universal, all one word, which I remember reading at the time and thinking it was cool. The project was considered dead in the water after Ellis lost the story files in a computer accident a couple of years later. And then Jonathan Hickman brought a number of the characters and concepts into his Avengers run in 2013, and they've stuck around and are still affecting the world. Like, I think the current Avengers team has a star brand wielding teenager on their roster, you know, and like we talked about earlier, the original new universe comics have been partially collected into trade paperbacks and put on digital platforms. You can read the first nine issues on Marvel Unlimited. But the comics themselves are pretty easy to track down. I keep running across early issues in the dollar bins. Yeah. It's not hard to find affordably priced, like complete sets. Of Four, for a, dollar. Four yeah. for a dollar. Four for a dollar. Four for a dollar. I have some Cyforce issues in my collection for that very reason that I just kind of stumbled across them and picked them up. So yeah, there's got to be better choices. It just has to, <laughs> has to be better choices. It's also not hard to find affordably priced complete sets of Cyforce or DP7, which, you know, as I said, were the two longest lasting titles for sale. DP7 is worth that. I recommend yeah. you get DP7. I was Mark and Paul the entire run and they did a really good job. Yeah. I have not, Mike, I, the only books that I've read that have had new universe tropes in them have been the Hickman Avengers stuff. Because that's the only the ones. I've yeah, read. I have Jason not read Aaron any has. of the other things. That you, and Jason Aaron, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Hickman and, and Jason Aaron now. Because I still read Avengers in, in trade paperback form, usually quite yeah. a while after the original issues published. But I never read any of the other stuff. I certainly never read stuff. So I have zero clue what they did, what was done, and honestly, even less less yeah. interest. <laughs> Zero gotcha. interest in what they did or what was done, you know? You know, that these things exist in a shared universe sandbox. Anybody can play with the toys when the company says we're breaking out these toys. To play. So whatever, whatever they did, is, it doesn't, you know? Yeah. And that, uh, I severed my emotional connection to the characters and the publishing program when they shot Jackman and Rowe Nomad and put them in a trunk in, in an issue of Brew Baker's Captain America. <laughs> when they did that is when I kind of said, oh, okay, I can live without caring about these characters and this stuff. 
So I still read them, but the emotional connection we gone for me. Completely gotcha. gone. So I'll I'll read stuff still to this day, right? I will read it, but but there's no there's no there's no heart in it in that regard. <laughs> so you know, like throughout the episode, we've actually talked about a lot of the questions that I had already. So on this note, I think this kind of wraps up our discussion on Cyforce. Do either of you have any closing thoughts about this series? No, I I liked it. I thought the characters were fun. I liked they each had a different vibe. I love that Kathy called everything gross. <laughs> <laughs> and she hated the powers and she called them all gross and ew, why are you why are you astral projecting again? That's so gross. <laughs> Such a cliche just, valley girls. <laughs> yes, I could hear her though and I love that one of them would have that reaction, you know, of just being like having this power that just feels weird and that's the reaction i, I do that. remember honestly jessica it was pretty funny i remember we got a letter from an asian teenage girl from california who read her brother's issue and she was really happy to see that a valley girl could be an asian girl yes. <laughs> representation like, matters like yeah i'm thinking this is 1988 and i'm like wow representation matters even when it's negative stereotype. <laughs> okay. and you know what she there was she had other good qualities about her like oh yeah she, yeah she I did of course she, she was did. the fashionista and she yeah. you know she really she brought an interesting vibe to the group as a whole i thought because she didn't have to be there like she had a family like there was one issue where they went into her backstory and how you know she goes home at one point and i like that she didn't have to be there. She wasn't in a sanctuary, like in this home for runaways out of necessity. She was there because she had this power and it was driving her to go be a part of this team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and for me, it's, I've had lots of people, there's always subcults within subcults within subcults of comic book readers. So there is a small, but enthusiastic group of new universe fans. Yes. Yeah, so I learned about this. <laughs> And they always ask, would you rewrite, would you do it today? Would you do it now? And, and my response was always, it'd be kind of silly because all the characters are in their fifties now, you know, <laughs> but then, then you think, well, that in and of itself is pretty interesting. Isn't yeah. it? Now you write these characters for the first time in 30 years and they're now 30 years older. You know what I mean? So yeah, that it, it would be kind of fun to explore. Again, this is with the caveat that I'd never read anything that Marvel's done with the universe since then. So I have no, I have no clue what they did with any of the characters. But it would be fun to explore that world 30 plus years later to see what it was. I would prefer that the original writers who worked on books be the ones who get an opportunity to explore that. But with that being said, it's already been done. I just don't know what they did. So mm. you almost, and I put it in capital letters, you almost made me interested in seeing what those other writers did with the smooth <laughs> they did in the early <laughs> aughts and stuff like that but not quite not even oh, not, not, so close, Mike not enough to hunt it out yeah let me i'm gonna become kreskin and karnak the magnificent johnny carson i'm gonna predict that warren ellis wrote a dystopian dysfunctional kind of negative superhero story okay there you go Ooh, what? what a guess madness <laughs> what a wild guess
Uh, let me get the deconstructed the superhero myth, and he left before he bothered to reconstruct it. Okay, thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. Yeah, I mean, I'm right there with Jessica. Like, I found myself really enjoying this, and it was really fascinating for me because the new universe has always been kind of one of those myths, you know, for consumers like me, where it's like, oh, it was Marvel's failed experiment. And actually, you know, reading through this, I'm like, it really wasn't a failure in terms of like, you know, editorial content, like it had a bumpy start. But, you know, I generally liked how it wrapped up. And as you talked about, it wasn't actually a commercial failure either by the end of it. It was, you know, it was going along. So I really liked what I was reading. And I also really liked learning all this stuff about, you know, an industry that I love. We are now at Brain Wrinkles, which is the part of the show where we talk about one thing comics or comics adjacent that has been stuck in our brains lately. So, Jessica, how do you feel about starting things off this time? I would I would be honored, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> so I've been thinking about newly elected Congressman Robert Garcia, who will be sworn. Ah! Yes, he is going to be sworn into office with a copy of Superman number one, which he is borrowing from the Library of Congress. No big deal. Uh, along with his <laughs> citizenship documents and a photo of his parents who unfortunately passed with COVID through this whole thing. And I think it's a really sweet sentiment. Garcia in an interview mentioned that he learned how to read in English through comic books. So mm -hmm. they're incredibly near and dear to him. So did I. Oh, see, so there you I. go. That's and, such well, a, yeah, exactly. Well, and my next sentence is literally like, Mike, you and I had discussed how comics were really the gateway to reading for you. And I feel like this is true. I mean, same thing, obviously, Fabian. It's really true for so many folks, and it's really nice to hear a story where comics are getting the credit that they deserve in a really positive light. Yeah, we've uh, come a long way from Frederick Wortham and the seduction <laughs> of the innocent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we have. Yeah, mine isn't nearly as wholesome. I have been thinking a lot about Quasar, mainly because he came up in my research for this episode and was also mentioned in a Twitter thread that we got tagged in the other day. Yeah, and random. <laughs> yeah, I genuinely, I liked that comic a lot as a kid, and I also didn't realize how weirdly notable it was. Like, not only did Quasar visit New Universe Earth, but Marvel actually brought over Barry Allen sort of after he died in Crisis on Infinite Earths via that comic. Plus, there's another storyline. Buried, yeah, buried alien, alien. Mark Grunwald, <laughs> God bless his soul, and I don't even believe in God, God bless his soul, for coming up with buried alien <laughs> instead of uh, Barry Allen. Oh, it's so good. Mike, we saw those pages in the office. We were cracking up. This was, oh, man. This, this, for me, it's a memory. Like we, we were laughing our asses off at the office, and half of us couldn't believe that they were actually going to publish it. We were like, are you, so good. you really doing this? And, like, and Mark would be like, he would giggle. Like, Mark had the stone face to the world, but if you got on the other side of the wall, it would retreat. He'd giggle all the time like a little boy. So when he got oh, pulled so out, happy. he got pulled out on the buried alien thing. He just hit her. He... <laughs> oh, man. What, you idiot, you ass child. <laughs> well, on top of that, there's another storyline that I really want to talk about later this year, and I'm not going to spoil it, because I don't want all of our dozens of listeners to go look it up. 
but you know, anyway, like I managed to pick up a nearly complete run at Lumicon last year for 10 bucks. And so now I'm moving that up my to read list. Nice. I like Quasar a lot, just so you know. I think that it was Mark getting to express all of his thought as a Silver Age DC child who got an opportunity to become an important part of Marvel publishing program. And, and as with many things Mark did, he always pushed superhero envelope in new ways that would soon be adopted by other people who were probably a little crisper than he was as a writer, a little edgier than he was as a writer. And those people got credit because they were crisper and edgier, but Mark had originally done it already in print. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from Squadron Supreme, the things in DP7, the fast runners needing to eat all the time because their metabolism was burning through. That was Mark doing that first, all of that kind of That's cool. You know, and Quasar also had a tremendous amount of cool stuff. And I mean, it, it, it was Green Lantern of his youth that he got to do in the yeah. Marvel Universe. One of the things he joked about is why did no villain ever think to cut off Green Lantern's finger? So what does Mark do? And they cut do? off his hands. He, he cuts off Quasar's <laughs> hands because that's where the Quantum Man thinks, you know. So it, it, Mark was a really, really dear friend of mine. And this kind of stuff was just his bailiwick. This is right up his alley there. So I recommend anybody read Quasar. I don't even know if the, the, the run is collected. It should be. They should have. I guess if Marvel ever does a movie or introduces him as a character, all those books will be collected. Trade paper. I'm sure they will. You know, I think it was only like 60, 65 issues, so they could probably do the whole run in one omnibus or a couple trade paperbacks, a few trade paperbacks. It anyway. is 60 issues, I believe. Okay, so yeah, there you go. That's what, that eight, eight issues of trade paperback? And you can do that. <laughs> anyway, so for me, in order to end your show with a lot of trouble, <laughs> I am it. vexed the last two days by something that rarely vexes me and that's the snyder bros doing a twitter <laughs> trend oh on netflix buying the snyder universe oh god <laughs> and i find it mind-boggling a that they still exist b that this still exists and c that they don't understand how reality works. And to ask, to actually try to create a petition or a social media campaign to get <laughs> Netflix to buy the top seven DC properties. I don't understand. I, I, I'm, I'm truly boggled by the man boys doing this because I don't understand what they think their end game is i fail to understand how they fail to understand how reality works yeah, like tell me you uh, don't understand do, the entertainment industry without telling me do they do this do they not research before yapping because they know in their hearts that if they research they'll realize they have nothing to yap about or do they not research before yapping because they don't know how to research I they just know how to yak. It might be a little bit of both. Bit of Mike both. and I talk about this. I mean, oh, we dude, talk about I don't, the I don't, I don't, I don't talk to, I don't talk to any of my industry friends at all about, about that. We don't, we just don't care. We, we just shrug our shoulders and go idiot. But, but 
I just saw it happening in the last couple of days. And I did respond to Jamal Eagle. I had a thing on Twitter and I responded to it. And one guy responded back to me and I found it kind of cute. <laughs> what? I'm trying to see what he said. He said something like, here's a bowl of cream of wheat for you, old man, or something like that. He said to me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he oh came in swinging, didn't he? Ooh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I found it. I, I, I found it so cute. Um, I'm trying to see what my tweet was. Um, That's precious. Tweets and replies. Wait. And you know when he wrote that, he was like, oh, this is going to be an absolute zinger. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Um, okay. So Jamal responded. So I answered, you truly don't understand how this all works. And the shame of it is, you choose not to become better informed before mounting your crusade. Is it because you realize that if you were better informed, you would then know not to mount your crusade? And this guy answered, and here you go. His, his screen name is the Fat Dad Rat King um, <laughs> at Weighty Cakes. That's the other, the other thing I find fascinating. There are about six red flags in that name. Yeah. I do find it fascinating that the ones who yap the loudest and the stupidest almost never use their real names online. I, I've never been anyone but my since ni 1991 for a year, I was not myself on AOL message. Then I stopped that and I just became myself on all social media platforms. Right. So after he, re he responded, come on, dad, let's get you home. Your cream of wheat is waiting. <laughs> Which, oh my God. Ideally. Damn. You'd think that's a great response, but my response was, I don't like cream of wheat, but I really do appreciate you being so considerate. I'll have some <laughs> special K with a banana if you have any, and I definitely need more coffee. And that's Amazing. where I left it with. And, like, and what a and chef's for kiss some reason, response. For some reason, the fat dad rat king couldn't respond to that. That He had nothing left to throw back my way. And I didn't even get a banana at him. So what a shame <laughs> it, it is comics adjacent. Unfortunately, it isn't though. It's endemic of a significant portion of our readership, mainstream Marvel DC superhero titles that, and I think about this a lot more than I probably should, how disillusioning and disappointing it is, or you can let it be to yourself as a writer to think that a solid percentage of these imbeciles who are saying the things they say and acting the way they act were your audience when they were 12 years old, you know? <laughs> mm. And I, I think about it a lot that we talk about that me and my friends have talked about what did we not do in our work that makes them think the way they think now, how did we fail in our storytelling that how they are now is a byproduct of what they got out of us back and half of us go, well, none of it's our fault. And the, the other half of me included go, something has to be our fault. We're, you know, <laughs> look at these idiots. So these idiots were reading X-Force when they were 12 years old. So what did we do wrong? You know, you start thinking about the litany of the things that you should have done better, smarter, you know? And I know that a portion of my work, most of the F stuff, would lead to this kind of thinking 30 years later. I also know a portion of my work, like no matter new warriors would lead you to the opposite way of thinking. So I'm thinking a little crap on the writer. 
that produced both sides of the coin for these imbeciles. And too many of them went to the wrong side of the coin. And and yet I hear from the ones who didn't. I hear from the ones who, you know, are 45 years old now. And that's not what they got out of New Warriors or what they got out of Nomad is vastly more important than what they got out of, you know, hypersteroid X-Force issue, you know? Well, I mean, I'm one of the latter. Like, you know. You got bad stuff out of the hyperthyroid steroid issues? No, I got good stuff out of New Warriors <laughs> and Nomad. Okay, then you're one of the former. You're one of the former. Sorry. Thank you, Mike. You threw me off there for a minute. If you were one of the latter, then you're just like, you know, punching people in the face. We've had an enemy in our ranks this whole time. <laughs> Look, show me your biceps, Mike. I want to see how big your biceps are. <laughs> Jessica, you've never seen all the pouches that I throw on my belt? Like, yeah, the pouches. That'd God. be great if you stood up and you had pouches all around you. He's just <laughs> scooping protein powder at this point. At this point. <laughs> right from a can, the powder. powder. Who needs a spoon? <laughs> He's got one of those dentist spit things. Oh, God. <laughs> the combination of watches it right now. So, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I can't argue with any of that. I think it's a really thoughtful, a much deeper perspective on something than we normally have here so thank you for that also thank you so much for just coming on the show and talking to us this was something that Our we were pleasure. so excited about for so long and yeah we know it's run long but like you know this was really special for both of us and we're really excited to have you back someday to talk about Waterworld. so um, <laughs> i'm gonna need my bowl of cream of wheat before i do that <laughs> I'll call well, Rat King. We'll get it worked out for you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. It, it was a lot of fun. The two of you guys are great. And it was a really fun conversation. Thank you. Next time I sort of got, I'll throw you a bone that is, is better, better comics, more popular issues. We'll this talk about great. something. This was awesome. We'll talk about something more relevant than Thigh Force in New oh, Universe. We don't no, work here's... in relevancy. That's, that's not how we operate. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just like, the response is we're irrelevant. <laughs> No, I don't I don't think you understand. Like my partner is a really amazing artist and so she drew us a mascot and our mascot is Piles the Trash Goblin. Like we're we're trash goblins. It there it you just go. is what it is. But yeah, we will be back next week with another episode of Dollar Bin Discoveries and then after that we'll have some other longer episode. I don't know what it's going to be. But until then, we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier, Mike Thompson, and Fabian Nisiesa, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics art was designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, for now. The official podcast account is TencentTakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K, and Mike is Van Sal, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. Hi, you can contact Fabian Nicieso through the DMs on Twitter at Fabian Nicieso. Also, same at Hives on Instagram, I'm S Nicieso. Easiest way also to get a hold of me if you want is through my author website. Hopefully, it's one day the most misspelled URL on the planet. 
www.fabiannisiesa.com and you can always email me straight through that. There's a contact tab on the website. And we will include a link to that site in the show notes. Thank you. Don't spell it wrong. <laughs> I would it'll never. Be, it'll be www.fabiannikunza and then that <laughs> guy will get all of my emails. <laughs> I promise we'll get it right. If you'd like to support <laughs> us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. Remy says goodnight, too. There she goes. Oh, oh hi, baby. Remy. Say hi, Remy.